0: I don't want this day-to-day job. It's terrible. You have to interact with so many people. Hi, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey.
1: And I'm Elliot.
0: And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes... And instead, get up close and personal with the lesser-known legacies and real-life bad behavior of some of history's most
1: notable and beloved people. You know what I'm excited to talk about this week?
0: Um, politics?
1: I mean, I I would talk about politics at length, yes. Yeah,
0: but I would not be excited about that.
1: Okay, okay. There's just this whole... Stimulus and infrastructure bill just sitting there in the Senate to be talked about, but
0: and to be fair, I did pick a politician to feature this week, so this is a <laughs> yes. this is a prison of my own making. <laughs> yes, no,
1: but I will spare you okay uh i w- I'm excited to talk about vaccines.
0: I am always excited to talk about vaccines
1: one one of us qualifies now for a vaccine. This is true. Probably the wrong one of us
0: again, yes,
1: okay, so here's the thing. Vaccines. Technically, I qualify now where we live. Texas is about to open up to all adults. state where we live is not yet open to all adults. This is true. But if you qualify and you don't have an appointment, which is also like this whole other thing you have to find once you qualify. Mm -hmm. One solution is that people will just go hang out at a place that's giving vaccines and just wait to see if they have any extras so they don't have to throw them in the trash.
0: Yes, and to be fair, there there's like, this is like a hotly debated strategy, and most ethicists fall on the side of like, this is good. If there's extra vaccines, whoever can get them should get them.
1: Yes, and the ideal is that there's not extra waste of vaccines. There's not even extras, but if you have extras, use them, don't throw them in the trash. Mm-hmm. So, because I qualified this week, I went to a CVS. yes. When they were about to close, because I knew they didn't have an appointments, but I was like, "Hey, maybe it's close to our house. Maybe they'll have some extras." Mm-hmm. I showed up like before closing, and they're like, "Okay, wait around. We got two people haven't showed up." Eventually, those people did show up. Good for them. Yep. And then CVS was like, "Do you want us to put us put you on our list?"
0: <laughs> yeah, of and course. I was like, yeah, well, sure. you have a
1: list for like the extras. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know the system existed. And they're like, yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, and then the the pharmacist reaches behind the counter and pulls out like this raggedy spiral-bound notebook oh, no. and a gel pen. <laughs> and opens it up halfway through. And it's just like this hand-scribbled <laughs> list of names and phone numbers. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is a list of people we'll text if we have extras. Mm. And I was mm. like, okay, uh, <laughs> you can put me down. Sure. Also, this is the system? <laughs>
0: If there this was, is like
1: the glory of American innovation?
0: The, no, it's not the glory of American innovation. It is the, the, the radical undressing of the true American system. Like yeah. oh. that is That right there is a metaphor for America. We're like, oh, we have an abundance of stuff. We might put your name on a list <laughs> and you may or may not be texted.
1: Yeah, it was eventually, by the way. Mm-hmm. The punchline of the story is that I ended up getting an appointment, not because of any government system, but because some dude wrote a Twitter bot yes. that like yes. alerted whenever new appointments opened up just because he was bored and he didn't need it, right? And he built it. And then, yeah, that's the only way that I was able to actually get something. Yes. So,
0: that that bot is amazing. It just was like, hey, in your area with, with this zip code, here are available appointments and it's... If you could get signed up, you got signed up.
1: Yeah. So I, I will say that I'm grateful for the can-do spirit of the American people.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. It and, will be the people who save each other. And
1: yet again have had all my worst suspicions about American infrastructure confirmed.
0: That's a nice segue. Speaking of infrastructure.
1: Yes. You're talking about Biden's infrastructure bill. No. Damn it.
0: This is maybe the <laughs> second time that that has been your go-to speaking of infrastructure There's joke. There's so
1: much good infrastructure <laughs> stuff going on, but uh, fine. What were you going to talk about?
0: I was going to talk about this week's hero. I was going to introduce him.
1: Who, who is this week's hero, Audrey?
0: Oh, oh! now you're ready? You would like that? Now I'm ready. Okay. This week's hero is Lyndon B. Johnson. LBJ himself what do you know about him
1: lbj as i like to call him
0: as he liked to be referred
1: yes um i i would say i actually probably know more about mr johnson than most people
0: i yeah i offhandedly made a comment about some things i had learned in research and you were like oh yeah i knew that Mm -hmm. and in my mind it was like no person (sighs) knows this this isn't such an oddly specific thing to know about this person unless you have done this amount of research. Tell me why.
1: Sure. Yeah. So the main reason is because after Kennedy's assassination, there was this massive, massive once in a generation policy shift in Mm -hmm. U.S. political landscape. And LBJ was at the helm. And it had massive implications for the way we think about the social safety net and civil rights in the United States, and mm-hmm. he was there, yep, and as a political science student in college, right, part of that is examining that, and then also finding out like, oh fuck, it took this dude who was just this dude, yes, this dude, <laughs> uh, in order to make it happen, and uh yeah, I would say it was probably one of my earlier uh forays into understanding the complexity of what would otherwise seem a very admirable figure in U.S. history.
0: Sure. So we are going to talk about just very briefly those policies and things that you mentioned. But specifically, we are going to dig into the very much lesser known legacy part of LBJ. Like, we'll touch on, you know, the Civil Rights Act and food stamps and All of the great policy things that were a result of this very specific moment in time, this momentum that happened after the assassination of JFK. But 99% of this podcast, or this episode in particular, is going to be about that very lesser known bit. (laughs) Yes, yes. The parts (laughs)
1: that don't get quite the play.
0: Right. So let's start. Born August 27th, 1908. I did not forget Audrey's astrology corner this week. August 27th birthday makes him a Virgo. So Virgos born on August 27th are practical and use their creative abilities to advertise a point of view. They feel their responsibilities deeply. They often involve themselves in projects that teach or help others, and they are determined and have a hard time taking orders. So does that track with what you learned in college?
1: Yes. I would say he definitely has a point of view.
0: <laughs> See, you didn't even need a degree. All you had to do was just Google <laughs> August 27th birthday, and, like, now you know. Now I know. hmm So he was born on that date. He was born in Texas. This Texas identity is, like, a very big part of his life. It is part of his much more prominently known legacy. <laughs> But he was born the oldest of five children. His family was like pretty traditional.
1: Wait, just technically speaking, he mm-hmm. was born the oldest of one child and then <laughs> sure. over time became the oldest of five children. Sure.
0: He, he was he was born first. Yes. There were four or more after him. Family's a bit religious. Well, his mother's religious. He comes from a like a long line of religious leaders in the Baptist church solid middle-class upbringing. His father was a rancher and cattleman who dabbled in some politics at some point, started making connections. Just got
1: his fingers in the politics pool there a little bit.
0: Yeah. I mean, it feels... It kind of seems like if you are a rancher of moderate means in Texas in the 1900s, you can put your fingers wherever you want. When LBJ was a teenager, his father actually sort of mismanaged the farm and these political connections and ended up losing the farm like that saying he lost the farm like they lost the farm
1: literally lost the farm
0: yep so lbj went from this life of you know relative security to pretty quickly uh, not having a lot it's not a good time to not have a lot If you can think about the timing of this, it's like the early 20s.
1: It's not yet the depression or the crash. But like you're not set up to weather that well.
0: You're not. Regardless, his family ends up sort of like um, recovering. And they do have all of these connections. His father had wheeled and dealed enough. Uh, LBJ was described as being awkward and talkative um, and kind of just like an average student. That talkative part... Is important for later. Just keep that in mind.
1: Had the gift of gab.
0: Yeah, if you know a talkative child, and you are routinely woken up by them between five thirty and six thirty a.m., and you are just like every now and then a bit resentful of how much they talk. <laughs> And just exhausted after a year of being trapped in a home with a child who just never stops talking.
1: Just in general?
0: Just hypothetically, a good way to reframe this is, wow, that child is going to be very good at networking someday. (laughs) They, They will have the gift of debate. They will be able to articulate what they want and get what they want using just their yappy mouth.
1: So hang on to that in those moments.
0: <laughs> if that is um hypothetically you. He ends up graduating high school pretty young. He's like 15 or 16. He's going to move to California. He thinks he's going to go to school there. Gets to California, realizes, "Oh shit, I'm 15 or 16 ish." <laughs> it's yeah. it's like a, it's a bit fuzzy. And I'm super ill-prepared to be out here on my own. I have no life skills and I have sure. no job prospects and I'm not a very good student. Mm. I don't have enough money to just like buy my way into college. I'm going to go back to Texas and be a day laborer. So that's what he does. That's a
1: that's a big shift back. Real, real reality check there.
0: Humbles you. This humbled LBJ works odd jobs for a few years. When he's about 18, he actually enrolls in college which is what we now like consider the typical age to go to college. In college, he joins the debate club. He gets involved in campus politics. He takes a job as a sort of like side teacher to some children living in communities that don't have a lot of wealth. And that's how he ends up paying for his school. He graduates I don't know, four years later, I guess, with a degree in a bachelor in science and a certificate or certification to teach high school. Hmm. He briefly teaches high school debate before he realizes how shitty it is to be a teacher.
1: Yes. And all the teachers out there, you know exactly what we're talking about.
0: It is a noble profession. It takes a noble, dedicated person. That was not him. Hmm. He he did it so briefly before he was like, this ain't it for me. There are some among us who have also had that experience.
1: Yes, I've had that experience where I was a teacher at a school and I was like, I am not a good enough person to have this job.
0: <laughs> I mean, really, it, it requires a certain fortitude, if you will, to be a teacher.
1: Yeah, I was a fucking wuss. There was no way. <laughs> no, please. No, no. People do this bullshit. I don't believe you. Prove it.
0: Yeah. And if you're a first year teacher, what I can tell you as someone who spent an additional many years in education beyond the number that Elliot spent, um, it gets better, kind of. But
1: (laughs) Imagine that. By the way, with just the LBGT uh, campaign, Mm -hmm. it gets better, kind of.
0: (laughs) It's like that episode. And damn it, I'm upset about how many times I've referenced The Office on this show. But when Robert California interrupts, um, yes, Oscars,
1: Oscars, <laughs> Oscars it gets, and better, it gets better and
0: he goes, "Yes, it gets better, but it gets vastly more complicated." <laughs> <laughs> that's what it's like. So hang in there.
1: Yes, hang Wait, in there. Teachers. What season are we
0: on right now? Currently, oh, that's like season eight, eight, eight. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But now we're actually in 1931. We're back oh, in 1931. Yeah, yeah.
1: Sorry, this is not Office Ladies. Mm-mm. That's right.
0: 1931 Johnson gets thrust into this political career. He had political aspirations after watching his father, but he's 23. And through these connections that his father had, he ends up getting this job as a legislative secretary for a member of the House of Representatives. So it's like a pretty big job for a 23-year-old.
1: Yeah. So he is a... He's an aide. He's an aide for an actual U.S. congressperson. Yes. Okay. Got it.
0: In this representative, his name was Richard, I'm going to guess it's Kleberg. Kleberg?
1: What have I told you about guessing pronunciations? You just say it, the first thing comes to your mind, and you just repeat it every time, and the confidence is what sells it.
0: This representative, Richard Kleberg, <laughs> was like, uh, being a congressperson sucks. All I wanted was the power and uh, fame, and I don't want this day-to-day job. It's terrible. You have to interact with so many people and you have to care about so many things and he didn't care about any of those. Mm. And so essentially he just sort of handed them off to LBJ and he was like, hey, do this. And everybody started to know that Lyndon B. Johnson had the like sign off from his boss to make these decisions on behalf of the
1: office. Kleeberg didn't give a shit about what actually happened. LBJ got to decide.
0: Yes. Yep. As long as it made Kleeberg look good. Fair enough. And they had similar values, so he knew, like, what to do. LBJ, during this time, forms this group that he calls the Little Congress. And it is basically just a handful of other congressional aides, some important journalists, and a whole bunch of lobbyists. And he gets them together in the same room, frequently, routinely, sort of starts to cultivate these relationships you know he's in the weeds but as this sort of puppet master he has this 30,000 foot view of like how do you wheel and deal who are the important players and he entrenches himself uh, in this group as a young person he's like 24 25 he has this knack for reading people Like, that—that that is the thing he gets very good at very young. And that is the thing that will carry him throughout his career, but it starts during this phase of his life.
1: Yeah, because if you think about it, if you're somebody who's invited to this back room, you're a journalist or you're a lobbyist or you're one of these other aides, right? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, the first thing you get is you start to feel important, right? Like, oh, not everybody's here, but I'm invited. And then he, like... Right, can ask you for favors and you can ask for things and you start to feel like, oh, we're doing something. And mm-hmm. yeah, uh, LBJ is just, even by gathering this group together and starting to like shape the dynamics of it, yeah, that's this is the shittiest part about politics, right? Is that all of this is fundamentally how these policies that affect thousands or millions or tens of millions of people get figured out.
0: I've been involved in some policy work and... I really like the strategic part of it. I like knowing the the next chess move. What I don't enjoy is how you get that information about which move to make, which is to know the right people.
1: Yeah. Or to have killed somebody.
0: Sure. Usually it's knowing the right person to kill, but <laughs> <laughs> I have people surrounding me who are exceptional at this and enjoy it. And, it,
1: and those people are scary.
0: No, no, it's it's yes. But also um, it it helps me understand that we all have our role to play. Right. And there are people who are good at very specific things. And you can believe that generically. But when you feel it and you see it in action, you're like, oh, shit. Yeah, I'm not good at that. And I and the important thing is I don't want to get better at that.
1: Yes. yes, Right.
0: And there are people who understand that early what they're good at, what they want to get better at, and it essentially, like, just do that thing.
1: Yeah, like killing people, for example.
0: That is not what LBJ did, but he did know that what he liked was being surrounded by people, and he got very good at it. One of the people he surrounded himself with, in, starting in 1934, when he's just 26, is Claudia Alta Taylor, also known as Lady Bird Johnson. Well, Lady at the Bird. time, Ladybird.
1: That's such a good movie.
0: It's such a good name. I don't know why she stuck with Claudia as her legal name. Wait, Ladybird.
1: Ladybird was her legal name? No, no.
0: Claudia was her, her legal name. Ladybird was a nickname that she'd had since childhood.
1: Oh, okay. I can't fault her for that one.
0: It's a rockin' name. On their first date, LBJ proposes.
1: First date, fool.
0: Yes. She's like, what the fuck? No. Um,. No, I am very wealthy. I come from high society. My father is the leader of Harrison County. Like she comes from means, right? And so the fact that he even, she's even entertaining a date with him is a thing. And so obviously she's like, no, thank you. But I would go on a second date with you. Second date turns into a third, third into a fourth. And it's only a handful more dates before she accepts his proposal,
1: which wow. he makes
0: again after a handful <laughs> of dates. They're married in the same year that they meet. And it's clear within a few years of their marriage that LBJ's political career has real potential. So, what Lady Bird does is she uh, gets early inheritance and uses that money to fund his first bid for Congress in 1937. He wins. And after he does that, Lady Bird becomes sort of a fixture in his professional life. In fact, she runs his whole life. So like I said, she was raised in this family of means. She had no experience keeping home before she got married. But as soon as they're married, there is this expectation that she will overnight become this homemaker. And there's this expectation that She'd she go will
1: fuck himself, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That
0: she will use her. No, no, she she uh, does her very best.
1: Oh, OK. To assume okay. this role.
0: Right. So he had these like very high standards, if you can believe it. This man who is obsessed with image and power, he expected her to bring him coffee every morning there was a very particular way he liked his clothes ironed. And I mean, it's like the typical scenario of a 1940s housewife.
1: Yeah. Not that different from my expectations for you.
0: hmm Yeah. But um, unlike Ladybird, I actually <laughs> told you to go fuck yourself. And I don't iron. So I hope you can invest in some clothing that doesn't <laughs> need iron. Dry clean only? No, thank you. Not w- worth it. No. I mean, you can drop your <laughs> on at the dry cleaner. I will not be... Handling that part of your life. If you have dry clean only clothing, that's your business. That's not mine. (laughs) I'm sorry you made a poor investment. Just put it in the washer with all the other stuff. We don't even separate the different colors.
1: Yeah, life's short. Who knows what's going to happen?
0: Right. Cold water, super load, fill it up as much as you can fit in there. That right there is efficiency.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's one word for it.
0: That was not her life. And so... She does her very best to adapt to um, very suddenly becoming a housewife. And not just a housewife, but a housewife to a person who had an unapologetic and insatiable desire to be both the best and most respected member of Congress. Like, that was an explicit goal. That was said out loud to many people. I want to be the best and most respected. In order to do that, obviously, he has to spend a lot of time away from home, right? You have to know the right people. You have to be in the right places. And he was very good at this. He's working constantly. At the same time, she is at home. She is um, at times working to keep his office running also, because let's be honest, if you care about people... And the schmoozing, you usually don't care about the paperwork.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
0: And that's fine. You have to know what you're good at. Lady Bird had to handle the paperwork, pay the bills, hire the right people, keep the right staff, etc. And she did this with like very little attention from him. There are a number of (laughs) interviews with her about their marriage. And they're all um, surprisingly very positive. But she talks about the early part of their marriage as being... Just this one where she adored him. She was enthralled by him. She literally waited every single night by the window to see his car, like his headlights, turn into the driveway. Didn't know when it was going to happen because he was working all the time. Could be 7 p.m., could be 2 a.m. He expected her to have food ready whenever he showed up. And he might show up with other congresspeople who were hungry at 2 a.m. And she had to be prepared in service to these whims
1: and she signs on to this
0: she signs on to this and more that's that right there is just the tip of the iceberg please be in service to me 1940s housewife that's typical if i was your wife in the 1940s we would have real struggle because (laughs) there'd be different expectations but those were the expectations beyond that he was additionally controlling of specifically her image what she looked like, how she represented him, right? So he is obsessed with his rise to the top. What he wants her to be is this, quote unquote, respectable but sexy wife who can help him get to the top, Mm. bolster his own image. Like, wow, she's a catch. You are of status,
1: I guess. I don't know. (laughs) Madonna whore, anybody?
0: He had these very particular expectations that he thought aligned with his brand, his image. And he dictated to her what her makeup and clothing should look like. So he wanted her to be wearing red lipstick and these bold fitted dresses. Um, And if you walked into the house or an event and she wasn't wearing makeup, and this is from her own retelling of the story, she said he would say, you need to go put lipstick on because you're not selling what you're worth. Yikes. Right? And so you would think she would resent that. I, I would assume you would think that because of the number of times you've been like, what? <laughs> Over the last five minutes. This is the wild part to me. And uh, it's, it's actually not that wild in the context of context, right? Of the 1940s, 50s. But... This is going to be wild for people to hear in the context of 2021. So her interpretation of these demands were that they were, in fact, backhanded compliments.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: She said, quote, he thought I was good looking and he wanted others to see me that way. I had the idea that people were supposed to love me because I had an interesting mind, a kind heart and a warm smile. I thought that Lyndon's emphasis on clothes and appearance was the wrong system of values. He used to say that a lot of people that I met would only see me once and that the opinion they would form would persist. He wanted them to have a good opinion of me. By the world's rules, he was right and I was wrong.
1: It's rather cynical to just be like, oh, yeah, nobody cares about my mind. (laughs)
0: Love is blind. You can justify your way out of a number of things, I suppose. But he was,
1: he was negging her. That's what he was. He was what? He was negging her. What does that mean? Like the pickup artist, like the negative. Oh. Yeah. You don't I, know this? I have never even picked up in my life. Oh, my God. Oh, There's this whole like m- mid 2000s subculture where the whole idea is you pick up women in bars Ooh. by giving them backhanded compliments. Like, oh, you're pretty for a seven. <laughs> or, And then like because they have, feel like they have something to prove, then they, they just like fall for you. Mm. and it's like the sleaziest grossest like mm. style of dude in a bar you can imagine wow lyndon b johnson was the original
0: he is, he he has set the bar high so he's doing all of this to her while at the same time fucking a whole bunch of other women and he's not doing this secretly right like uh everybody knew This is a young marriage, an early marriage, and he's already starting to have affairs. The big major affair in his life is with this woman named Alice Glass. In an article from Texas Monthly, do you know anything about Texas Monthly? No, nothing. Okay, so it's actually like a legitimate long-form publication where, for example, true crime investigations are published and they're in-depth and they tell a story. It's not just... Reader's Digest. Texas Monthly is a legitimate news publication.
1: Okay. It's a real deal. It's
0: a real deal. There's an article called Alone Together, and it is an investigation into the marriage of LBJ and Lady Bird. And the author, Jan Jarbo Russell, uh, wrote of Alice, the mistress. She said, Glass was the mistress and later the wife of Charles Marsh, a wealthy publisher of the Austin American Statesman and one of Johnson's primary patrons. It had the potential to imperil Johnson's marriage and his political career, a risk that he seemed compelled to take. Like other presidents before and after him, Johnson was a man who, even from a young age, was pulled in two directions at once. Part of him wanted great power for the glory of helping others on a mass scale. Another part of him wanted power so he could satisfy more raw instincts, including his desire for random, unlimited sex and the thrill of dominating others.
1: <laughs> okay. um, So he's sleeping with one of his largest political donors mm-hmm. to satisfy his need for random sex. Yes. What could go wrong?
0: What could go wrong? And, you know, uh, Alice was described as this nearly six foot tall, beautiful, blonde, trim woman who had a seductive and soothing voice. She's like a caricature of sex in the 1940s is how she's described. She could have been like girl next door in 2021 standards, but that's how she's described at the time. And it's pretty clear to everybody around her that Lady Bird knew that this affair started early in their marriage. It lasted for decades. Alice was married to other people. LBJ was married to other, or was married to only one person. But, (laughs) you know, this story. From the jump, this affair took a pretty big toll on Lady Bird. So she set out to almost subconsciously, like, emulate Alice in the early days of her marriage. When... LBJ and Lady Bird were first married. Lady Bird was um, sort of fuller figured. She was a bit more modest. But as soon as she started to learn of LBJ's interest in Alice, she lost a ton of weight and, like, very restrictive dieting, stayed uh, at a very low weight for many years in her marriage in ways that were certainly not healthy. And started wearing the skimpy dresses he wanted, always wearing lipstick, et cetera, et cetera. And she really started to immerse herself in the role of being a politician's wife. Whereas before she had been like, oh, I'm married to this up and coming politician. This is interesting. After she learned of the affair, she basically was like, oh, now I need to run some shit. And she became Lady Bird Johnson, like head of the political wives in Washington. She was going to take control.
1: Because now she is part of this system that is the power behind the machine. Yes. She's like ingrained in it in a way that makes her valuable, not just to him Mm -hmm. as a wife, but to him as a political operator.
0: Yes. And she also understood it would be like... uh, two more decades before anyone who had been divorced had held high power in the US uh, political sphere
1: so he's not going to get rid of her by any means no so she's gonna make herself as core to this operation as possible
0: right so she not only is she indispensable she is an active participant in shaping this political discourse And I want to give her credit for that because that's like boss girl shit (laughs) back in the 40s. (laughs) Um, But she probably deserved to eat a lot more than she did.
1: Fair enough.
0: So, you know, now we're in the 40s. They've been married a few years. And you might be wondering about this other thing that women were expected to do in the 40s, have children.
1: Yeah, makes sense.
0: They were married in 1937. But by 1942, they still don't have kids. And people are kind of like, oh, they don't have kids yet. What they didn't know was behind the scenes, she had had three miscarriages. Mm. Each one obviously devastating her. She had this strong desire after she became a wife to not only be a good wife, but then to have children. And then when she couldn't have children at first, she was like, I'm going to be a good politician's wife. But she still really wanted to have children. And so after years of this, having miscarriages... Knowing her husband's fucking other women, shit starts to get heavy for her. But things turn around in 1943. She finds out she's pregnant. 1944, she's at the end of her pregnancy. She goes into labor. She's like, hey, buddy, time to, you know, go to the hospital. Picture this. LBJ drops her off at the hospital. No way. Then drives around Washington with, quote, a political friend. She said... That the Lord Jesus was the one who helped her get through labor.
1: What the hell?
0: Because you know who didn't? LBJ. Yes. E shows up. She's at the kid. They have a kid. This child's name is uh, Linda Bird. So another LBJ. She gives birth to this child. The next year, she was like, okay, I'm going to get pregnant again. Like, he wants a son. I'm going to drive for that. She ends up having a tubal pregnancy, so an ectopic pregnancy. It requires major surgery, blood transfusions. Yikes. She almost dies.
1: Yeah, very dangerous.
0: And if you can believe it, LBJ wasn't there for that either.
1: I can believe it at this point, yes.
0: He was there ultimately to make the decision when the doctor came out and was like, I can save her life or the babies, which seems absurd to me that a tubal pregnancy would make it far enough along that
1: yeah what
0: regardless lbj at the end of it shows up he's like yeah save her life
1: she runs half my political operation come on no (laughs) brainer
0: i've got this newborn at home (laughs) that i have no interest in taking care of he was there for the birth of their second daughter a few years later lucy losing something i forget her middle name but it's another lbj uh fun fact they also end up having a dog that they name i think lucky Lucky B something. So literally everybody <laughs> in the family is Lyndon B Johnson, Lady Bird Johnson, Linda Bird Johnson, Lucy something Johnson, Lucky something Johnson. <laughs> like he was obsessed with having an LBJ. <sighs> uh, a hair. I don't know. Harem? That's not the right word. But like everybody was LGB. Seems L- insufferable. LBJ. Anyway, so he's there for the second baby. Credit where credit's due, I guess. <laughs> All this is happening at home. Professionally, this is when he's really solidifying himself as a political go-getter. So he won that bid for Congress in 1937. He is this congressional up-and-comer. And And the fact that he has so much influence at this time, and basically all the way through his career, is absolutely mind-boggling when you learn about the way that he treated his colleagues. Do you know anything about this?
1: Yes yes I do
0: <laughs> okay so maybe I i bet a lot of our listeners don't I'll so, bet they don't right uh, I'm gonna start with an excerpt from an article called who was the most repulsive president it sure as shit wasn't Donald Trump
1: <laughs> <laughs> which is in and of itself hard to believe
0: yeah so we can pause on that headline for a second here's what the article says quote he was horrid enough that the way he said things was almost as bad as what he said. Anyone who came into contact with him was at risk of encountering a spectacle of burping, farting, nose-picking, and crotch-scratching. Congressman Richard Bulling, who witnessed some of this, told Merle Miller, quote, I wouldn't say Johnson was vulgar. He was barnyard. Worse, Johnson had no sense of personal space and treated every conversation as a creepy hands-on affair. Miller learned from Washington Post editor Ben Bradley that, quote, you really felt as if a St. Bernard had licked your face for an hour and had pawed you all over. So, like, he says some vulgar things. We're going to talk about them in a second. But just the way that he, like, entered your space, the way that he, like, took over There was no decorum. If you think about the typical charming politician, you think of this like, ooh, I'm smooth talking and refined. This motherfucker rolls in like scratching his balls. Like, I'm here.
1: And then grabs you by the cheeks and, you know, rubs you on the face. Yeah. Yes. Like, it's gross.
0: So in addition to just being like physically kind of repulsive (laughs) to everyone around him, there's also a number of accounts that he did some pretty, he did some things that violated a lot of people. So he would intentionally flash his genitals at other members of Congress. Yep. He would brag about the size of his testicles.
1: Yeah. So let's be clear. Right. So like, um, do you have stories about this? Um, Tell me your story. I just know. Right, so so when you say like he would flash his testicles. So think for a second, like, what's the situation? <laughs> yeah. Right, and
0: he said, no matter the situation, by the way, yeah. it's not
1: acceptable, so the stories that I have heard, right is that like he would insist on like walking into the bathroom, talking business, right, mm-hmm. be peeing at a urinal, right mm-hmm. and then, like, as they're talking, finish urinating, and then walk backwards and then turn to face the other person, continuing his point, just dick flopping about, and part of it is the you know audacity right
0: mm-hmm. yeah that's that's part of it
1: <laughs> right and it is the how unexpected it would be to just have all of a sudden somebody flopping their dick in your face
0: yeah yeah um that that is unexpected
1: and apparently he felt he could get some advantage this way
0: yeah i'm not really sure what the advantage was apart from the fact that he was like very concerned about the size of his genitalia, and this was like a topic of frequent conversation with people. So um, when he later becomes president, spoiler, he becomes president, and they're like, the Oval Office has recording devices in it, and most of his conversations with most people were recorded. There's conversations recorded of him with his tailor, and he's getting fitted, and he like makes a point to ask his tailor to make sure that there's extra room for his testicles because he's concerned that his testicles are too big for most pants. He, like, has a nickname for his testicles. He brags to other congressmen that he has, like, enormous testicles. And, like, I'm reading this thinking, like, sir, you have the mumps. (laughs) Like, Like, why are you talking about your testicles so much? So... He's doing that to the men he works with. Yes. Obviously, he's doing some shitty things to the women he works with. He would uh, make inappropriate comments. He would, quote unquote, accidentally bump into them and grab their breasts. He would make horrible comments about their weight. And later, biographers talking to you know people who were in his office, they all reference this like culture of extreme dieting where you had to weigh a certain amount and you had to look a certain amount he wouldn't hire you unless you were a per- of a particular size look etc
1: jeez Ugh.
0: he also had this like <laughs> a really horrible collection of colloquialisms that he liked to use <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> sort of you know like oh i'm foxy from texas i say things like weird shit Um, Most of them, or many of them at least, were pretty racist. Mm -hmm. A lot of them were very sexist. uh, And some of them were just like nonsensical. But one of them that (laughs) uh, is coupled with his legacy and has been passed down and recorded, it's on record, that he said that I find just absolutely astonishing that someone who ends up as the president of the United States of America would say is that when he, didn't, when he disagreed with something that happened or he didn't like it, one of the things he would say is, quote, that's worse than what pantyhose did to finger fucking. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> so that's where we're at. <laughs> <laughs> That's the level of maturity and decorum. Another big one he used was, quote, I've got his pecker in my pocket.
1: Oh, yes. I remember <laughs> hearing that one.
0: When he was trying to signal like he had the upper hand against this other politician or influence. This came into play when he, you know, was like the Senate majority. He was trying to whip folks into. Yes.
1: Colloquially, I would imagine I've got him by the balls would be. A more common phrasing but... yeah,
0: but do you actually want that recorded uh, <laughs> attributed to you, recorded in the library of congress <laughs> these are These are recorded <sighs> in the Library of Congress as official things that a president of the United States yes. once set on record,
1: and also right like, there's one level of visual that's about grabbing someone mm-hmm. right, about holding them in a position where they're uncomfortable, and then uh, there's another. That's like, oh, yeah, his penis is in my pocket right (laughs) now. Like, that's a different thing categorically.
0: It's a vibe. (laughs) It's a vibe. (laughs) As you could imagine, he did a number of other... He said a number of other horrible things, the least of which was not that he used the N-word pretty consistently.
1: Yeah. Uh, Innumerable times, perhaps. Just incredibly racist and had no respect for black Americans.
0: No. And he... But he is like credited with getting the civil rights act pushed through
1: yes this this is the part that is interesting to me right Mm -hmm. but anyway continue
0: yeah so there's this big dichotomy where most people know him for these accomplishments um what they don't know is behind the scenes the fact that he like had absolute disregard for black americans and like unapologetically so but you get the picture this dude sucks And so with a few exceptions of the moments that I've been referencing about the Oval Office, most of all of what I've talked about up to this point has actually happened when he is a representative, like House of Representative for the 10th District of Texas or whatever, Austin area. But in 1948, he makes this leap from the House to the Senate. He wins the race by only 87 votes. And... um. If you were Cardi B, you would say, that's suspicious (laughs) because that's what everybody said. They were like, hmm, that is very suspicious. That is such a close race. I wonder, just wondering, putting that out there. Because of his, you know, like networking and call a spade what a, a spade, his very highly manipulative ways, he goes from the House of Reps to the Senate as a freshman senator, and within two years, he becomes the minority leader because the Republicans control the Senate. But within two years, there's another election. Democrats are in control. He becomes the majority leader.
1: Which within four years of being elected to the Senate is just like a crazy thing. Like people work for decades to like get that kind of leadership level.
0: Right. And that is attributed to this um, generously... Let's refer to it as network that he's built. But he had this... um, Penis in
1: the pocket approach.
0: Penis in the pocket approach and this tool that he called, quote, the treatment, which is where he would, in front of all the other Senate folks, because he could read you, he knew you, he knew everything about you, he had done all the intel in front of everyone else, he would walk up to you, inches from your face, look you dead in the eye, and then start whispering stuff that he knew about you to you to get you to do what he wanted.
1: Just like blackmail shit.
0: Just like in front of everybody. And they called it, quote, the treatment. And it's how he was persuasive. (laughs) Again, generous term, coercive, and was able to be a actually really successful majority leader if what you count as success is getting his specific agenda passed.
1: Yeah. I mean, like the thing this comes back to, right, is that if you are in a position of political power, the metric for whether you are successful in getting what you want is whether more people vote with you than against you. Yes. And the thing that is rewarded is finding ways to get people to vote with you rather than against you. hmm.
0: He was exceptional at that. Exceptional. So recapping the timeline. Twelve years in the House, ten years in the Senate. It's 1960 at this point. He launches a presidential campaign. As a successful majority leader in the Senate, he's a pretty household name. Most people think he has like a decent shot at the presidency, but he makes two really big, significant strategic missteps. And the first, for whatever reason, is that he didn't launch his campaign until July.
1: Of a November election? Yes. Wow. Yeah. I mean, like now we have like three year political campaigns, which I hate, but that seems late still.
0: It is late. It was very late. People had told him to launch the year before he had held out. There was some like legislation he wanted to pass. This is a little bit complicated, but he doesn't launch it till July. By then, JFK, who was running in the same election, had essentially secured the base. Everybody liked JFK. So that's his first big misstep. The second big misstep is that he underestimated two things. The first being how charming most people thought JFK was. He was, you know, like a legitimate, smooth talker that people thought was authentic. He underestimated that. And he underestimated that because his approach was to be so brash and crude. And he underestimated how much most people hate that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It turns out it worked for him because he wasn't competing directly with somebody who was more pleasant to be around.
0: Exactly. And so his approach to politics was considered disreputable by most. And so these two things, very clear from the beginning, not going to win. He launches this sort of, quote, stop Kennedy campaign, where instead of running for president, he just takes out this like vendetta against JFK in particular. He brings in the fact that JFK is young, that he has ill health, that there's all these Kennedy family scandals. Everybody's like, who cares? Actually, he's young and hot and we want a young, hot president who sounds cool and he's got a hot wife, I guess. That's what I'm guessing people in the 60s saw.
1: Sure. Yeah. Sounds, sounds, right, sounds right. Right,
0: right, right. It's why, it's why a lot of folks tout Melania as a great, you know, first lady. But this plants a seed in Robert Kennedy, who is, you know, also a politician alongside JFK and is one of his close advisors to be like, oh, LBJ is the worst. Just like... When you become president, he's going to be in the Senate. Pull no punches. What happens next, though, is a shock to everyone. And that is that, obviously, JFK asks LBJ to be his vice president. There are two theories about why this happened. Do you know any of this conversation, this discourse, this little bit of trivia?
1: Um, I think one of the two reasons would be that LBJ helped secure the Southern Democratic vote, which is mistrustful of a Catholic from the Northeast.
0: That's the number one reason.
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, Because, again, JFK would go on to be the first Catholic Mm -hmm. president. And there was this big concern that a Catholic president would have to take orders from the pope. And LBJ being a Protestant from the South could help assuage that. Also, some of the racists didn't trust that JFK was racist enough. And LBJ was undeniably incredibly racist and got a lot of their support.
0: That's reason number one. The second reason is that everybody in JFK's camp thought LBJ would say no.
1: Oh, okay, that's a good. <laughs> they yeah, thought enough. that
0: he was too prideful, that he would not want to partner with someone who he ran a legitimate campaign against. That he would not want to give up his Senate majority role, where you have a lot of power, an incredible
1: to, amount of power. Yeah,
0: to become the VP, which is sort of a ambiguous amount of power. And that they thought that LBJ would just wait and run again in a few years. That's not what happened. Mm -mm. LBJ was like, sure, yeah, I'll do it. For sure. Yeah, I would (laughs) like to be the VP. When he accepts, (laughs) this kind of fucks up JFK and Robert Kennedy's whole plan. They actually had someone that they wanted as a backup that they don't get to ask to be vice president. But he accepts. They campaign together. It's pretty well documented that JFK and the whole Kennedy establishment, Camelot, if you will, uh, were quite guarded and apprehensive when it came to LBJ.
1: Didn't really like ball scratch and make dick in your face.
0: They didn't. And at one point, JFK like said out loud, like, I'm pretty worried about what would happen if I died and LBJ became <laughs> actual president. So, whoops. Um, (laughs) yada, 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 LBJ becomes VP. And one of the first things he does, because he realizes there's this ambiguous amount of power, is he tries to redefine the roles of the vice president and the Senate majority. So he tries to get Kennedy to sign off on this executive order that would give the vice president the powers of the Senate majority.
1: Interesting.
0: And everybody in the Senate was, first of all, like, no, fuck you. That is not how it's going to happen.
1: That is blatantly unconstitutional. <laughs> Do you
0: not know how the Constitution works? Yes. Yeah, uh, Separation of powers is a thing, and you don't get to change that. Um, and that makes him pretty upset because now suddenly he is this vice president who has this ostensible power, but like really no power. He tries to get Kennedy to give him all of this control over national security and all of these different committees and specific roles. He just, like, cannot handle the fact that he is the mover and shaker in Washington. He knows all the people, he knows all the levers, and he cannot change anything. Meanwhile, Kennedy had an entire agenda that was essentially boiled down to keep Lyndon B. Johnson busy. He knows too many people. He knows the levers to pull. He knows too many journalists. If he gets upset, then he'll start talking. And we can't have LBJ talking or undermining the presidency. One of those things that Kennedy was a bit apprehensive to have leaked to the press was that he was fucking around with a number of
1: people. A lot of people, yes.
0: Yeah. And the thing that Kennedy sort of held in his back pocket was that he knew that that LBJ had no moral high ground on this regard. And LBJ actually bragged about this. So, like I said, he did not keep his affairs a secret. And he ended up in this, I would say informal, <laughs> I guess is the word, pissing contest mm-hmm. with Kennedy about the number of people that they slept with. So he once said- oh,
1: interesting.
0: Yeah. He once said, quote, I've slept with more women on accident than JFK has on purpose.
1: <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs>
0: Right? I mean, like, who are you saying that to and why?
1: His wife. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Over dinner.
0: <gasps> I know. Get a load of
1: this, Kennedy.
0: Get a load. Um, we all know what happens next. A couple years into the presidency, JFK is assassinated. LBJ is, is inaugurated on Air Force One. And there's this like infamous photo of Jackie and LBJ and Lady Bird on Air Force One as he's being inaugurated. I don't know if you've ever seen this photo
1: i have seen this photo are are we going to talk about any of the conspiracy theories that lbj was somehow involved in jfk's assassination
0: we don't have the time okay we're like an hour in and all we've talked about is him fucking other
1: people (laughs) okay so we're just going to toss out that Mm -hmm. there is this realm of the Mm -hmm. jfk conspiracy theories which tend to involve cia operations the city of new orleans people through cuba Mm -hmm. people that didn't like what jfk was doing uh, people who thought Marilyn Monroe had been exposed to state secrets and was, sure. you know, there's, there's a whole constellation of things that like basically JFK was pissing off some set of Washington establishments mm-hmm. and had found out about CIA operations that were perhaps less savory, but also that in, in this process, somehow Johnson was kind of seen as the player who was friendly to the Washington establishment. Mm-hmm. And had some role in this. But again, that's for the realm of the conspiracy theory that we won't get into. Right.
0: We are a legitimate news organization. We will not be <laughs> yes. talking about that. Only we the We also will not us. be mentioning that J. Edgar Hoover lived directly across the street from him.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And um, none of that will be mentioned. Got it. All I'm asking is, have you seen that photo? I
1: have seen that photo.
0: Jackie looks rightfully like she is... Devastated. Crush, I mean, she's like yeah. shell-shocked. Like... The um, she
1: sells the blood from JFK on her dress in that she moment. She does.
0: She does. You like if you have never seen this photo, go look it up. It is hard to describe how destroyed she looks. Like legitimately, um, as if she's not inhabiting a physical body.
1: Yeah, I mean, like within the hour, she had held the brains of her husband mm-hmm. in her hand as they fell out of his head. Yes and it shows.
0: Yes. And what else shows is that LBJ is smirking as he's being inaugurated within the same hour that JFK has been assassinated.
1: Hard to contain that glee.
0: Right. It doesn't it doesn't bode well for the beginning of a presidency. He is able to get past a lot of JFK's agenda simply because JFK was assassinated and there's big momentum, like the country rallies together, we're gonna push through these things that the president cared about. We, you know, it doesn't matter that LBJ is the, the messenger, like let's get these things pushed through. LBJ is pretty explicit in that, saying like the thing that JFK would want most is not for us to be like mournful or to, to be sad about his death, he would want us to continue the work. So it's like totally manipulative, Absolutely totally opportunistic, yes. Totally opportunistic. But LBJ ends up getting reelected in his own right in 1964 with one of the largest majorities when it came to the electoral college ever. Running against Barry Goldwater, whose campaign was um, AUH20. I know that from a quiz team. Mm. Um, LBJ wins 44 states. <laughs>
1: Of the 50 in the Electoral College. Of the
0: 50. Yep. Yep. So that's a lot. The states that had at that point been gerrymandered and votes had been suppressed the most, it's like deep, deep south, Mm -hmm. that Goldwater wins. And so in his second term, I think it is fair to point out some of the good policies that he got passed.
1: He whips the stick out and just passes Civil Rights Act.
0: Let's not... Let's not frame it like that. I'm uncomfortable with that. Let's just go ahead and try and uh, be a balanced news (laughs) source here to say, you know, we understand that he is well known for Civil Rights Act. He got a lot of education reform passed, Mm -hmm. voting rights. He established a National Endowment for the Arts. He was one of the first to enact gun control laws, food stamps. He had an explicit agenda around poverty. And like during his years in office, national poverty declined from 23 percent to 12 percent of the American population. So he's like getting good policy passed. He's progressive even or especially for that time.
1: Half the people in America who were in poverty when he came to office were no longer in poverty by the time he left.
0: And he's able to do this because no one knows what a terrible person he is behind the scenes. He, and
1: frankly, he's maybe able to do this because of what a terrible person he is behind the scenes. This is a
0: both and. Like if you're trying to manipulate or co- persuade the good old boys club, you can be as crude as you want. They're the ones with power. Yeah. But in front of the American people, if you can speak the language of a Southern Baptist, mm-hmm. then, you know, this is what God wants. Then you get policies passed. There may have,
1: dare I say, there may have been a good person in Congress or in the Senate at some point during this time. But for the most part, what we're leaving unspoken is he's being terrible to probably what is a lot of other terrible people as well mm-hmm. to, in order to get this accomplished.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. So those are some of the the like policies he gets passed. Those are the, the good things he's known for. The primary bad thing he's known for is the Vietnam War.
1: Well, now you got to you know, make it sound like that's a bad thing, too.
0: Yeah, I am going to explicitly <laughs> make it sound like that's a bad thing. It was. Yeah. Oh, yes. Most Americans thought it was a bad thing at the time.
1: Let's <laughs> be clear. It's a bad thing. Yes. Right.
0: We're not going to talk much about it because, one, I am not um, adept at adequately communicating the the complicated narrative that the nuance of the Vietnam War deserves, but What I will say is that by the end of his presidency, he spends four years in office. Even he realizes that he has made so many missteps with the Vietnam War that his presidency and the legacy that he um, embodies has become so divisive because of this war that he can no longer be president.
1: Yeah. And let's be here. just like the high points here. Right. Vietnam War started on a premise that was false on lies, much like the Iraq war that we would come mm-hmm. to fight many years later. Uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of civilians killed, uh, tens of thousands of Americans killed. And ultimately, we left and accomplished nothing in terms of long term policy goals for the United States or anything else. Didn't help anybody. Just all bad. Everything bad. Lies bad death, horrendous, war crimes, war crimes too, definitely war war crimes. crimes.
0: For sure. And the thing that LBJ did that I don't think a modern politician would ever even consider was that he recognized that like, oh, I fucked up and I will not be reelected. I should not be reelected. This is dividing the country. And so despite being constitutionally allowed to run because he inherited the presidency instead of being elected to it, he decides to not run uh, at the time it was also framed as like he had quote unquote lost control of the Democratic Party which was a big dagger to his heart because he mm. had spent 30 years working his way up to con- literally controlling
1: his his whole jeu de vivre. had been putting peckers in his pocket yes and to be told that
0: he can't do that anymore
1: they'd escaped Right. was crushing.
0: Yeah. There were essentially like four factions that had broken off in the Democratic Party that he was just not in touch with anymore because of he was not in Congress. He was not, you know, he was the president. He was in the executive branch. He didn't have any influence apart from specific executive orders. But in 1968, he's like, I'm not going to do this anymore. In addition to that, what people didn't know was that in 1955, because he smoked 60 cigarettes a day, he had a heart attack. Mm. And that's just before he becomes president, right? Secretly
1: had Secretly. a heart attack. Secretly.
0: And he was starting then to experience ill health. And you and I just started watching The Crown. And so as I was reading this, I was like, oh, he's like King George VI. Spoiler alert, it's the first episode. <laughs> In The Crown, he realizes he's not like long for this world, that yeah. he would not survive a second presidency. He announces he's not running for reelection. Ironically, his approval rating jumps from 36 percent to 49 percent overnight. You just
1: tell people you're leaving, they're like, fuck yeah, good for you. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes.
0: We approve of this presidential decision. Um, And uh, right after this, there's this historian, Michael Beschloss, who wrote, On Inauguration Day, January 20th, 1969, Johnson saw Nixon sworn in. He then got on a plane to fly back to Texas. When the front door of the plane closed, Johnson pulled out a cigarette, his first cigarette he had smoked since his heart attack in 1955. One of his daughters pulled it out of his mouth and said, Daddy, what are you doing? You're going to kill yourself. He took it back and said, I've raised you girls. I've now been president. Now it's my time. (laughs) And from that point on, he went into a very self-destructive spiral. (laughs) (laughs)
1: And he earned it. You know what? He earned that.
0: You know what? If anybody needs real quickly to get into a self-destructive spiral, it's this clown. And honestly, that's kind of how it ended. So for the next few years, he had a series of heart issues. He just smoked all the time, gave no shits. He's fucking Winston Churchill at the end of his lifestyle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, whiskey in the bathtub. He gained a lot of weight. Then he lost a lot of weight. And he did this one final interview with Walter Cronkite, where what he wanted to do was just clarify his legacy. He's 64 at the time. He gives this interview. And 10 days later, he has a massive heart attack and dies. It's 1972 at this point. So he very clearly would not have made it through a second presidential term. Not at all. Right. And uh, he goes down in sort of the flames that he had lit. Created for himself. Yeah. So for his philandering, his absenteeism as a husband and father, his general willingness to talk about testicles with colleagues, (laughs) his Machiavellian rise to the top and his obsession with power and control. LBJ is not my hero.
1: You have to hand it to him. He was able to accomplish some admirable things in very, very vulgar and, uh, you know, horrible ways. Yes. And, yeah, there's this question, right? Like, is he a product of that system? Is there a way to have done those things in that time without doing that? And... Maybe not, but maybe there was, right? Maybe he could have been a slightly less horrible person and still done those things.
0: I mean, his wife talked about how the thing that she realized when she was in giving birth to their first child and what he wanted to do was drive around and talk to his friends was that in moments of uncertainty and discomfort, the thing that he wanted was people around him while most people want solitude and space to process and... He had this ability and desire to constantly know people and people want to be known. And if you have that desire, you will make a very good politician. Like if what you what you enjoy is actually like people, you should be a politician. The thing you also have to enjoy is uh, not getting too close to people because you're going to need <laughs> yes. to at some point leverage something against them to get what you ultimately want and which is you, yes. to be known yourself
1: yes well if despite our best efforts to stay hidden if people would like to know <laughs> us more where can they find us
0: they can find us on social media at your heroes pod or on our website at meetyourheroespodcast.com
1: yep and please like, share, rate, review, spread the word, tell your friends. And until next week,
0: don't be a hero.
1: Don't be a hero.
0: Bye.